Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. I'm Lydia Wilson, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. Is the urge to travel a universal human instinct? I'm joined today by Amira Benison, Professor in the History and Culture of the Maghreb at the University of Cambridge. Amira recently wrote an essay for New Lines on 12th century travel and tourism texts, medieval versions of Lonely Planet, as it were. Just as there are today, there were many different genres of travel writing during this period, and Amira guides us through them and shows not only that, yes, the impulse to travel is universal, but that the desire to read other travellers' accounts of faraway places is too. Medieval readers shared much the same concerns as modern ones. Are things expensive there? What should I go and see? But most of all, they wanted to hear tall tales from distant places to set their imaginations alight. Amira, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Lydia. It's a real pleasure to be here with you to talk about my medieval travellers. Well, actually, your PhD explored the 1830 French conquest of Algiers. Can you talk us through then how you got from French colonialism to medieval travel and tourism? Funnily enough, I I probably got there through um, leading tourists myself. Uh, After after I got my PhD, I did quite a lot of work for um, an Australian company leading tour groups around various parts of the Middle East. I led tours in Syria, in Egypt, in Morocco, across the Strait of Gibraltar in Islamic or the previously Islamic Islamic parts of the Iberian Peninsula. And I began to explain the history of those places to groups of, you know, interested travellers and sort of bring that combination of history and landscape together and to be able to talk about different dynasties in the context of where they went, where they built, what was important to them in terms of um, the environment. So that that really kind of stimulated a turn, if you like, in my work from thinking about legitimation, uh, the legitimation of different regimes through things like jihad or more kind of... um, conceptual discourses to how they legitimize themselves by actually physically modifying towns, by building a palace, Mm. by building a mosque, by um, improving water supply, and so on and so forth. So that that was sort of how that, that journey developed. And I've always been interested in dynasties. So it's been natural for me to write surveys of dynasties but sort of trying to bring in all these different dimensions you know the politics but also the society um the city and so on that's fascinating especially that personal aspect of actually being a travel guide yourself there must have been a lot to recognize in the subsequent reading you did in in travel so in your essay you categorize a lot of the travel texts that you've read from the 12th century into three genres um and i'll i'll run through them the first is often called the books of roots and kingdoms kitab al-masalik or books of countries now they sounded to me closest to our own guidebooks perhaps can can you describe them a little bit and say if that's fair or is it a historian's nightmare to compare an old genre to a contemporary one it probably is a bit of a historian's nightmare to be honest (laughs) they are quite different to modern guidebooks because the author might go on quite a long historical 
excursus. So there might be pages of historical narration kind of inserted within something that does look a little bit more like a modern uh, travel guide. I think the, the most functional of these works are actually not really like modern tour books or guides because they are very perfunctory, if you like. They simply sort of spend a lot of time saying the next journey stages from this place to that place, then the next journey stages from that place to the next one along the line. So you can go for a page or two where it's very, very dry and it's almost like a, a word map, if you like, just mm. telling you what where the network is. And then the description comes in when you get to a bigger, more significant city. Uh, and then there may be uh, topographical information, there might be historical information, and then there might be one of these little excursuses where she whizzes off and talks about a particular dynasty or the founder of the city or some other sort of vaguely relevant set of information. But that's not consistent. You wouldn't always get that. So you may or you may not get one of these little sort of historical interpolations um, with all the topographical description. They are very interested in um, agriculture. Ah, that's a difference. What, where do you think that comes from? I think, again, it comes from the commercial aspect of a lot of these books, the fact that they may well be merchant manuals in some cases and they're sort of handy you know if you want to uh, engage in commerce you in this period you'll probably buy and sell a range of items M most people didn't specialize in exclusively one product so it's mm. really handy to know for instance that Gafsa in Tunisia has lots of great dates of different types it's got lots of olives but it's also got very fine textiles and some great pottery mm, mm. so you sort of get an idea of the products of, of the area as a whole which are brought into the city and which you can um, buy and sell if you're a merchant and of course agriculture is a key part of those sorts of markets so it's just included as any sort any any economic activity is that what you mean yes exactly that is what I mean um, I mean these are agricultural societies it's easy to forget that but right and moving foodstuffs around is really probably the bulk of the commerce that actually takes mm. place you know we get very carried away with saffron and jewelry and a this, that, and the other, you know, and sort of the, the high end yeah. of commerce. Commerce, but yeah. The reality is wheat, <laughs> grapes, yes. olives, you know, the things you really need to survive rather than all these luxury items which are moved around in much smaller quantities. And then there was my favourite genre, which sound, and I'm so sorry for another a historical comparison that you will probably hate. Uh, they sound almost like sea belt in their, and how can I put this politely, their, their penchant for tall tales. I think in the essay, you describe them as a blending of fact and fiction, which is essentially what sea belt was doing. And this, of course, is the Books of Wonders and Rarities, Kitab Al-Jarib wal Qaraib. Can you give us some examples of the taller tales of these wonders and rarities? 
I mean, this is where we move more towards, um, you know, a thousand and one nights kind of uh, stories. So you will have some of these books which have a factual base. Um, we'll talk about a number of different locations which are fairly well known in quite a um, a straightforward manner, but they'll they'll then bring in some other places, if you like, that are on the fringe. So there are tales of um, a statue in Cadiz which speaks, or cities of bronze or salt in the desert, which is sort of just sort of just slightly beyond where people normally go. So the, these kind of things. And do you think people were supposed to believe them or were they supposed to entertain as fiction? I think there's always that um, suspense of disbelief element when you yeah. read these kind of books. I mean, I don't think that people in the past were necessarily naive or necessarily taken in by these kind of stories, but the world was much more mysterious as well. And there were lots of places where most people had never been and would never go uh, mm. and really weren't quite sure whether these things existed or not. So I guess people take the stories with a pinch of salt, but they like them and they like imagining that maybe they're true. Well, I mean, we can we don't really have to look at as far back as the 12th century to look for naivety and believing travellers tales. This has been a key feature. I think Herodotus is the most famous example. And we have Marco Polo, who occasionally stretched the truth and right through until now. I mean, look at the the ease in which misinformation and disinformation can can spread around the Internet. I think I think there's somehow um, a desire to believe in the in the more outrageous and the more mysterious and magical, maybe. Yes, I think that's right. And I think that's what I mean by suspension of disbelief. Right. You know, right. the, you know, you, you one could be highly critical, but on the other hand, one could just kind of go with it <laughs> and enjoy, yeah, enjoy the story it. and, you yeah. know, not really question it particularly, but just think, oh, wow, there's this crazy place sort of just yeah. beyond where I can actually go or this, yes. this sort of strange, strange fact. <laughs> yeah, I think that's why it's my, it was the favourite of the ones you described, to be honest. I like that myself. <laughs> I mean, I also in the essay, I mention the rumours that when um, the Almohad Caliph Al-Mansur took the statue from the gates of Cordoba, mm -hmm. then um, this strange wind blew up in a sort of raging storm around Cordoba because the talisman of the city had been taken. I mean, I, I love those kind of stories, too, because obviously these things can be completely coincidental. But, you know, we also know that if something significant happens in our lives and there's suddenly a, a storm or something, we do feel the symbolism of the, those two events occurring simultaneously. Oh, absolutely. Yes, it, it does feel like a human universal. And then we have the third type of writing that, that, that you define, which was the Rihla, um, a travel account written in the first person um, that usually recounted the long journey to perform the pilgrimage to Mecca, the Hajj, which is required of Muslims at least once in a lifetime. And this, of course, is a key difference to Christian culture. Christians had plenty of opportunities for pilgrimage, of course, all over Europe and the, and the Holy Land, but it wasn't a requirement for all in the way it is in Islam. 
Do you think that this difference, this different attitude to pilgrimage is reflected in travel writing of the different religious cultures of the 12th century? Or is the impulse truly more universal? That's a good question. I think there is a difference, but I think the difference is more that because the pilgrimage occurs at a specific time of year, it's a real gathering of people from all over the Islamic world engaged in exactly the same activity at the same time. Mm. And although it is a requirement, I think we have to remember that in the 12th century, most people still didn't do it. No. Because it's a legal requirement, but only if you've got the resources to do it. And most people in the 12th century obviously did not have the resources to do it. But I think just that sense that you should perform a pilgrimage does uh, encourage a particular group of people who are often the writers of these travel accounts, um, sort of what we might call like anachronistically middle class men to travel along the pilgrim routes and use it as an opportunity to do other things. They can sort of justify leaving home. You know, (laughs) if you need to explain to your mother why you intend to go for three years, you can sort of say, well, but mother, I'm doing the pilgrimage. (laughs) What can she say? You know, she can't complain. Yes. <laughs> well, you mentioned one specific example of the Rehla, which was the extremely popular version of the time by Ibn Jubair. And there's one intriguing detail that you mentioned, which is that he's very concerned with buildings, and that includes mosques, churches, and shrines, and also the big showy buildings um, like hospitals and madrasas, the theological colleges uh, that people might have built for a very specific political reason. And I wanted to dig down a little into this. First of all, did he have any particular view of Christian pilgrims in a text that is really on the Muslim Hajj? Yeah, I think, I mean, most Rihla accounts are about much more than the Hajj. Mm. They, that it is about the journey. I mean, the word Rihla means journey. So it is actually about the journey to Mecca, as well as the performance of the Hajj rituals within Mecca um, and the visit to Medina, the Prophet City, which is normally part of that trip as well. So people want to describe everywhere they pass through on the route. And in the case of Syria, which obviously has a, you know, it's the holy land for all three Semitic monotheisms, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And people like Ibn Jubayr were very aware of the, the Christian presence in Syria. And they visit a lot of shrines that we might think of as being Christian, but are actually really shared by peoples of all three religions mm. because the same prophets appear in Jewish scripture, Christian scripture, and in the Quran. So, mm. you know, people of all faiths venerate Abraham, for instance, and want to go to various places that relate to um, what we might see as Old Testament stories of the prophets so it's a kind of very much a shared landscape and uh ibn jubayr and others like him you know would see jews and particularly christians because there were a large number of christians in the region going to those shrines alongside muslims 
Now, he does take in a lot of cities along the way that are familiar to us. As you say, he went through Syria, for example. And um, now that I know that you've been a tour guide in Syria, I actually have a more personal question for you on that. Um, you must be deeply familiar with some of the places he was writing about and maybe other ones weren't so familiar to you. So was it very different reading about those ones that you yourself have described to hordes of tourists um, to those you know less well? I'm not sure I really thought close. I mean, I, I'm particularly interested in the new foundations he talks about, um, the hospitals and madrasas of um, Nuruddin Zangi and Salahuddin or Saladin. So I was particularly interested in those and I did find it very interesting to see them through the eyes of Ibn Jubair as well as through modern eyes. Uh, mm -hmm. I kind of just visited other places and explored them in you know looking at them from my own perspective but also being aware of how they might have looked to people traveling from North Africa or other parts of the Islamic world at the time. Now you make the argument um, that it wasn't only armchair travelers that were enjoying these books. In the case of Ibn Jubayr and his younger contemporary Muhammad Ibn Abd al-Rabi, they both had close connections with the ruling dynasty, the Almohads. So my question is about the connection between their geographical writings and the ruling powers of the time. I personally think there's quite a close connection and um, recent scholarship would agree and in fact has um, you know, informed my own thinking. Um, we're talking here about the, the Almohad dynasty and it's it's easy to forget how powerful they were in the 12th century and sort of tend to think of Muslim dynasties as being in the Middle East and not really pay much heed to North Africa. But really in the 12th century Mediterranean Muslim world, the Almohads were the biggest, most powerful regime around and they saw themselves in those terms and they saw themselves very much as heirs to important dynasties who had ruled not just in the Western Mediterranean, but also in the Eastern Mediterranean, particularly the um, Umayyads of Syria, who had been the predecessors of the Umayyads of the Iberian Peninsula, whom the Almohads very much modelled themselves on. So I see people like Ibn Jubair and uh, Ibn Abd Rabbi as looking at sites and being interested and engaged by them, but also sort of thinking about how the building projects of their own masters, the Almohads, can sort of interact with that past and make references to it, whether the past in Syria or North Africa or the Iberian Peninsula. So this was part of identity building. Absolutely. Yeah, I see it very much in those terms. In that, in that sense, I see the Almohads as being quite modern. Or, mm. or perhaps more, it's just something that, you know, regimes in power have been doing, you know, continuously from sort of the time of the earliest civilization onwards, you know, trying to make one's mark in some way and trying to demonstrate through visual means, um, through 
you know, palaces or cities or other structures, religious or secular pyramids, um, you know, what you're about, you know, how your subjects should see you. And, you know, obviously today we have many more methods of conveying ideas and images very quickly to people. But, you know, in this period, a, a building said a lot. Yes. Something that people could actually go and see. I mean, the other thing that said a lot, which one often forgets, um, is currency. Oh, in you know, terms fact, of... Yeah, the uh, fact that, it, you know, you can I, have a little religious motto on mm. currency. You can mm. have the name of a ruler on currency. So, and it's something that people have to handle the whole time. Yes, exactly. It's daily. Like yeah, yeah. The inhabitants of cities are seeing the... The buildings daily, both things, the big and the small, making a constant impression. It's about legitimation, isn't it? Yes, it really can be. Um, and I, I do feel that when Ibn Jubayr is carefully describing new hospitals and new theological colleges or madrasas, he is in part trying to inform his master, the caliph or ruler Al-Mansur, that this is the kind of the power building of the time and that you know if al-mansur wants to be sort of an international islamic figure he might well consider building a hospital or a madrasa for instance it's political as well as armchair travel yes yeah very much so and um both the figures I concentrate on in my piece are not armchair travellers. I, I only mention one armchair traveller, Al-Bakri, who's sort of a very famous geographer, but he was kind of, if you like, an academic, a researcher <laughs> sitting in the Iberian Peninsula. But the, these two figures from the Almohad period are people who travelled extensively. Um, and so I want to just explore any more reasons there might have been to write. I mean, some is for entertainment, for a general public, general in this time out of the literate public, um, of course. But then we've already mentioned the political um, and we've touched on the religious reasons that there were descriptions of shrines and and Mecca and so on. Um, but you mentioned other ones. Intriguingly, there was a connection with intelligence gathering. Yes. And whether that was actually going on or not is, is hard to say, but... Um... As ever. <laughs> well, indeed, I mean, it's the nature of intelligence gathering, really, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> so what's the link that you noticed then? Um, it's, it's, it's an idea that's been put forward in the case of the, um, the famous scholar Idrisi's big geographical work, which was produced for um, the contemporary Norman king of Sicily, King Roger, which sort of gave a quite detailed account of, of the towns, the ports, the agricultural products and other commodities of the Western Islamic Mediterranean uh, and, and further afield, in fact, for King Roger. And there's a possibility that people like uh, Ibn Abdurrabi are also writing to give the caliph information about the area he rules and to make him aware of the commodities, of what's there in the landscape, the different peoples who inhabit that space. Well, it's a legitimate kind of grey area, isn't it? And that's what a lot of intelligence is. There's a lot of knowledge in the public domain that is very useful to rulers in an in 
intelligence type way. And that's, I mean, scholars of all descriptions, but I would say especially anthropologists, could easily be accused of the same type of work. Yes, indeed. Uh, and as you say, you know, any gathering of information is sort of intelligence gathering in a yeah, sense. Potentially, it's, yeah. <laughs> to, to know better what's out there and then you, you may or may not use that information um, in your political or military decision making. Well, exactly. Research is research. It gets turned into intelligence by its use, I suppose. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, but, I mean, Ibn Abdurabi in particular does seem to be um, working for the caliph al-Mansur quite directly when he's traveling all over the empire mm. and um, collecting the information that then goes into his book. Well, why do you think people were so interested in reading these travel these these travel tales where whatever type they were I think there's a variety of reasons why people wanted to read this kind of writing I think you know there's the utilitarian aspect that we've already mentioned in terms of garnering information if you're a merchant or indeed if you're a ruler I think in the case of the travelers themselves as well as their readers there also is just that enjoyment of things that are unusual and different a kind of broadening of one's mental horizons that sense of experience um and something we haven't really talked about is uh ibn abdurabi's really very touristic interventions in his own text where he suddenly becomes very personal and sort of describes the, the sort of the physical experience of being somewhere whether it's sort of listening to uh, a river roaring in a ravine from the high bridge at Constantine or, you know, being in the echoing cisterns of Carthage. Um, And I think it's that which really captures people's imagination and Mm. gives them this sense of the expansiveness of the world and the sort of the potentiality out there and sort of takes them out of what, um, for some readers, must have been a much more sort of hundrum existence Um, with little chance of travel beyond their own town or country. So as much as any other type of literature, really, offering people new experiences beyond their own. I think so. It's a broadening of the imagination, isn't it? It is. It is. And that's a lovely note to leave on. So Amira Benison, thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. This has been The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Lydia Wilson. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com, where you can also read Amira's essay on medieval tourism. Thank you all for joining us.